Hello, Luxury Stance listeners. Happy holidays. I'm Scott Kerr, I'm, and I'm here with my podcast partner, Mickey Alam Khan, who just hosted a fantastic Luxury Outlook 2024 webinar last week. Yes, thank you so much, Scott. Wonderful to be back with you on this podcast. Um, we had a fabulous webinar, and the focus obviously was on the outlook for next year. Uh, we had two great speakers, Milton Pedraza, who is the CEO of the Luxury Institute, and uh, Jacques Rosen. Uh, Jacques Rosen is the managing director for consulting at DLG, Digital Luxury Group right. in China. And both of them, uh, they concluded that uh, next year will be up. Obviously, they were cautiously optimistic, but uh, on the whole, uh, they uh, were in positive territory. Yes, luxury has challenges, as we'll be discussing throughout the next year. But uh, as long as the wealthy and the ultra-wealthy are protected in their stock market portfolios and asset values, uh, we can expect to see the market going ahead. And obviously, the the area of turmoil is basically the aspiration consumer market. Right. That's it. And not all categories will experience the same exactly. pain points. You know, jewelry and watches might do a little bit better than some Correct. of the other ones. But it's interesting. Let's talk about the housing market. You know, the housing market hasn't been easy to navigate the past couple of years, despite two regional wars, rising mortgage rates and inflation, global economies having displayed surprising resilience with recent inflation figures suggesting perhaps a turning point at this time. What about the luxury real estate market? What, what do you think is going on there? Do you think it'll still stay strong for 2024? I think, uh, you know, you're absolutely right that, you know, there are uh, you know, uh, wins at the back and in front of uh, real estate. But in the luxury end, what we're seeing is this, what we'll see next year is probably a little bit of a repeat of this year. Inventory is still tight uh, in mm -hmm. the United States and in key markets uh, around the world. Uh, in the U.S., uh, we still have high mortgage rates. So folks who are not purely cash buyers uh, are still reluctant to sell their properties because if they bought it during the pandemic, they locked in at really historically low rates, right? right? And now if they go back into the market, they're going to be paying double of what they paid. So there is a slight reticence there, but the good news is the Fed just signaled that they'll lower the rates or they may lower the rates three times next year. And it just so happens that it's the US presidential year and then they're elections in some key markets around the world. So if interest rates drop next year, we can expect to see a corresponding drop in mortgage rates, which will definitely free up inventory in the high-end market. Uh, and that'll bring about more inventory. And I think we're going to see more sales. Asking prices are holding no matter where you go. Yes, time and market is longer, obviously. Uh, there is that linger time factor. But at least in the United States, uh, the asking price is held. Markets like New York are very strong, you know? Um, but if you go abroad, I mean, uh, if you look at uh, Asia Pacific yeah, right. and you look at Europe and I mean, uh, uh, Knight Frank just came out with their study and, you know, the top markets for next year, Auckland, Madrid and Stockholm. Stockholm, right. Yeah. And they're all going to see a surge in the luxury prices. So overall, the... Uh, outlook is quite positive when it comes to pricing. Um, and, you know, later on, we'll probably talk about the biggest challenge in 
the luxury real estate or the real estate market in the United States, and it has nothing to do with the the seller, but it's a legal issue. Oh, so it's also interesting that talking about cash buyers, this year there was a huge surge in cash buyers. I think the research um, showed that there's like 52% of prime buyers are now opting for cash purchases, which is an increase from 46% just six months ago. Yes, and and that, that is primarily because of uh, the stock market. You see, there's you know the stock market has performed reasonably well in key markets and that has freed up liquidity um so i think what's happened is the ultra high net worth class has just grown exponentially and i mean you know on luxury roundtable we have all this research out there available to members and you'll see report after report stressing one thing that the ultra high net worth market has been pretty much insulated from uh, market winds that are not good. Right. So we know for a fact that, you know, London, uh, you know, and the top end, most of the cash purchase, most of the properties are cash purchases. I mean, you same thing you'll see in Dubai. Dubai is trying to attract expats from around the world, right? And they also benefited from the flight of Russian wealth from uh, Russia uh, as, you know, the Ukraine war started because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the West levied all those sanctions on those uh, Russian affluence. So you've got that uh, market right there. Uh, and then obviously the Indian market, India also now uh, is sending a lot of millionaires, exporting millionaires around the world uh, because they're looking for safe harbor. Same thing with the Chinese. So I think you're going to continue to see a rise in uh, property values in the prime market. I don't know if you know about this at all. And I was reading in a few different areas about Demand for certain amenities have changed too in these luxury homes. Have you seen that at all? Any trends in in that area? Yes. Uh, you know the thing is that when you're when you're looking to buy, you know, twenty or thirty million dollar house, it just cannot be a cookie cutter house. Right. And uh, you know, we we covered some research on uh, you know some of the developing trends in this market. For example. You know, when you look at, just give you an example, the kitchen, everyone's focused on the range and, you know, the kitchen island and the marble tops and all that. But guess what? The new in thing is luxury range hoods. Hmm. Uh, it's not just your plain aluminum range hood that sucks all the exhaust out. Now you've got gold plated, you've got, you know, bronze finishes and you with, you know, a marble backsplash i mean it is everything that's <laughs> being sought after is personalized to the whims and fancies i know it's you know it's to some it's just frivolous but this is what is now in vogue and um, you know that's just the kitchen part of it then you look at uh you know in the outdoor space the cabanas and natural water features and you know these these little fire pits, you know, that are completely unique. They're not even your typical bricks, right? Uh, you know, fixture is it's made of reinforced concrete and they're works of sculpture. Uh, and then you look at the bathtubs. I mean, it's like, it, it's like, you know, you don't even want to get out of that bathtub once you're in it. I think a lot of it has to do with this post pandemic perception of what home means now. And home doesn't necessarily mean 
in in an apartment or an, or a a new house, you know, a luxury home. It's also yachts. It's also planes, and where people are spending time in with not only themselves but with their families, they're reimagining what that looks like and the amenities that go along with it to live that type of life. You're absolutely right. I think the definition of a home has changed to being a place where you, you know, uh, like, you know, in the hotels, you say heads on beds, right. uh, heads and beds. But, you know, homes are not just places where you crash. It's basically they become your sanctuaries. Uh, they are safe harbors. Uh, what people want to do is control all the factors within the home. They want to have all the amenities that you would get when you're traveling and staying in luxury hotels. Even when you're on a yacht, you want every single facility you would have on a, in a that you'd have in a land-based home, right? So what you want to do is you want to take with you the sense of wellness, the sense of comfort, the sense of identity, and wrap that all around so that when you're at home, you're not encountering any friction with the outside world or inside. So I think what you're going to see is, you know, it's not about ostentation. It's about personalizations, about the use of smart technology. It's about the use of the finest materials, but keeping in mind uh, sustainability and being green and not harming the environment. So I think we've reached that point where all these new luxury developments and homes are taking into account our view of the home being a place not just where you rest and spend eight or nine hours, but where you could potentially spend a good 16 to 18 hours working there as well. And then you've got entertainment and then you've got, um, you know, rest and relaxation. And then you also have, you know, wellness, like, you know, your gyms and spas and all that experience. What I'm also seeing is that carrying over into these branded residences, you were talking about luxury hotels, you know, how they experience luxury hotels and the luxury brands is spilling over into these branded residences. And I'm and I'm not just talk, talking about the luxury hotels that are doing that, you know, the Bulgari and Porsche are all getting into the uh, the branded residences. And there was some figure, it's like up 150% over the last decade. And, you know, according to this uh, London-based commercial real estate brokerage firm, which is incredible. And um, they said that there are over 700 branded residential developments with upwards of 100,000 total homes, either completed or in the planning stages around the globe. It, it's a very impressive number. And just uh, this week, Mercedes-Benz lent its name to its very first branded residence. Oh, so you know, you, so long. Uh, well, uh, basically, you know, you you already had a few Germans beat them. I mean, Bentley's owned yeah, by or Bentley, uh, right. BMW. I mean, by Volkswagen. Porsche. Yeah, and then you've got Porsche, uh, Volkswagen again, or standalone now, and then you've got um, you know all the other players like the Aston Martin. So if you go to Miami, Miami's a showcase for right. all of this stuff, right? Uh, and that's why I remember going to the Aston Martin residences. It's a building beyond belief. Uh, the finishes are all what you'd see if you sat in an Aston Martin car. The person who bought the top unique penthouse for $50 million would get a specially customized uh, $2 million Aston Martin. Hmm. And when you walk into the lobby, that car is parked right there. And, um, you know, even if you go to the common areas, you see, um, you know, uh, the finishes and the styling that you'd associate with an Aston Martin. The same thing with a Bentley. Uh, you know, when the residence is complete, they'll have the same touches. 
what I feel that signifies is, you know, previously hotels used to lend their names right. to these brands. Now you're seeing in the luxury world, the biggest trend out there is collaborations. What people want to do is they're turning their luxury brands into lifestyle brands. Mm -hmm. And when they turn them into lifestyle brands, they're looking for partners where they can leverage the lifestyle. So, you know, if you're um, a Louis Vuitton, I'm, I won't be surprised if in the next five years you have a, a Louis Vuitton hotel. Already in, in uh, you know, George Armani has Casa Armani, uh, yep. which is their furniture line, right? So I'll give you one example. I live in New York uh, on Madison Avenue. And uh, a few blocks down from where I live, uh, we have a new tower coming up, I think it's on 65th Street in Madison. And that used to be the location of the Giorgio Armani flagship store in New York. Right. They knocked that building down. And now it's a brand new development. Uh, Giorgio Armani will take the ground floor and a few floors above. They're also designing all the apartments uh, in the building. And Mr. Armani himself will be taking one apartment. So that is right in Madison Avenue. You have the Giorgio Armani building now. And you take a look at London and you know all the other major metros there. You're seeing this boom because what you want to do is you're identifying enthusiast pods. So if you are a Bentley buyer, you're bought into Bentley values. And if they can, if they work for the car, why can't they work at home, right? right? And so, I think you're going to see a proliferation of branded residences beyond just the car manufacturers and the uh, hotel brands. I don't see a reason why you cannot have, uh, you know, a Laura Piana residence or a Galland residence. Now, the only thing is, you have to be very careful that long term the buildings don't deteriorate or the service doesn't deteriorate because, you know, all you need is uh, a bad experience in those buildings for it to turn viral and then impact the, the core brand. brand. Yep. You see, those brands don't have truly hospitality backgrounds. And that's, that was always been the, the thing that I thought about is, you know, the Armani, Cavalli, Fendi, they're not hospitality brands. You know, how can they translate what they know into a hospitality business. And that's where I thought a lot of the hotel brands obviously had the experience in doing that and translating that into branded residences where fashion and jewelry houses don't. Uh, they, all they're doing is licensing their name. And they but have- it's the, to, But it's still the brand, but it's, it's still the, yes. representative of the brand. So what they do is they work with very well-known and reputed developers. And they do a lot of background research to make sure that these partners understand that they are not building a home. They're building a Bulgari experience where you are part of that experience. So you are not actually, you don't actually live in, a, when you're going and staying in a Bulgari branded residence, you are basically staying in, you're becoming part of the larger story or the Bulgari world and the universe. Above all, what they're trying to say is that we are arbiters of high quality. And high quality can translate and transcend sectors. So they can they have the permission, if their brand reputation allows it, to extend into categories. Bulgari is known for its jewelry and perfumes, and then a few accessories here and there. And now they've gone into hotels, right? and residences 
Same thing, Baccarat. Baccarat was known for crystal and chandeliers and, you know, all the dinnerware and, you know, uh, all the decanters and all that. And you go to the Baccarat hotels and the first thing you get is the uh, oral experience, which is the sense of smell. Yes. It's that unique Baccarat perfume. You, it, it's, it's etched in your mind. That is their code. When when you walk into eventually when Hermes gets into this act, you will have touches of orange somewhere, and you will have the beiges and the the uh, the blonde word experiences, and you know you will experience some of that. So when someone buys a home in those properties, it also translates into more sales. So Bulgari is very smart. If you are staying in a Bulgari hotel, there's a fair chance you're going to be buying Bulgari jewelry or a Bulgari watch. So, and it's not cheap, right? So if you're buying a $10 million residence, you'll probably throw two or three or $4 million on a necklace. And they're looking at that potential. It's not just the licensing revenue, but also the fact that it will lead to repeated visits to the stores and to their allied restaurants. Right. And how brilliant is it that, you know, the name itself adds a lot of value to the building itself. So, you know, the building that you or I live in, we don't talk about the building's name or the number. But when in a conversation, if you're saying that you're living in, oh, I'm living in the new uh, Karl Lagerfeld apartments that they that they're building in, in Lisbon, that adds, you know, people want to talk about that. They'll love to name drop the name of the building. And, you know, here's the irony. Now, most people will not make the connection, but the two founders of this trend, the, the progenitors of these branded residences, uh, albeit not in the residence space, but in the office space, mm -hmm. were two automakers from the United States, Chrysler and General Motors. And Chrysler built its tower here in New York, and it's still called the Chrysler Building. It was built in 1929 or 30, right. around the same time as the Empire State Building. And then uh, a few years down the road, General Motors built their headquarters, or at least their New York uh, building, uh, right across a kitty corner from Central Park. And it's still called the GM building, right? So you actually bought into when you, the Chrysler building's architecture is so distinctive that even today, when you look at skyline shots of New York, it's either the Empire State Building or it's the Chrysler building's uh, uh, pinnacle that is basically shown from helicopters, right? And the GM building, I mean, when you take photographs from Center Park into the city, you can't miss that building. So automakers understood the power of brand extensions. And it's five or seven decades later that the hospitality industry cottoned onto that trend, starting with, you know, the Ritz Carlton's and Four Seasons and all those guys. And then it is now basically trickled down to the larger luxury world. So we've talked about the you know residential sector. I love to talk about the retail sector and retail, especially the luxury sector, hasn't just recovered from the pandemic and the threat from e-commerce, but it's really embarking on one of the most elaborate and expensive expansion sprees that I remember. You know, relief for real estate players who had braced themselves for its decline. Listen to these numbers and and. Tell me what, what you think these numbers I'm talking about here. If you were going on a spending spree, you know, the of the 1% of the 1%, $250 million at Rolex, the same at Tiffany, 
and 150 million and 50 million dollars at Cartier, capped by a relatively restrained 12 million dollars at Chanel. This buying binge doesn't just include jewelry and handbags. The dollar figures are investments top brands have made since 2020 in New York City's Fifth Avenue. The world's shopping street is really undergoing a spate of big retail renovations, store openings, and real estate deals at incredible numbers. To me, it goes back to what we talked about last month and we've been talking about is these luxury brands are investing in their, in their mono brand stores and in their brand, not pulling back completely from e-commerce, but they know that these are where the experience, where people want to get luxury experiences and experience their brands and they're investing big time on it in the, in the biggest shopping areas. I think this trend that you've highlighted, you know, a few years ago, uh, when e-commerce gained traction, people worried and they said, you know what, you know, we are commoditizing the retail experience. And this was a very big worry for luxury, right? But Bernard Arnault, the CEO of LVMH, he always insisted that the rubber hit the road in the store. Yes, e-commerce plays a big role. The discovery part is e-commerce and online, but the actual instant gratification, the experiential element of luxury is in store. At the end of the day, for you to be a successful luxury brand, you need to have an element of theater, a hint of romance. Mm -hmm. And you can only get that when you walk into a temple dedicated to those two. If you take a look, uh, you mentioned Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take a look at Fifth Avenue. For those of our listeners who have been to New York, if you stand at the intersection of Fifth Avenue and 57th Street, LVMH, owns three corners. Mm -hmm. It owns Tiffany's, which is in on 57th, on the southeast side of the street. Then directly across from it, on the southwest side, is Bulgari. And then across the street, on the north side of 57th Street, northeast side of 57th Street, is the Louis Vuitton store. And the Directly across that is obviously Van Cleef and Apples and Bergdorf Goodman, all right? But Louis Vuitton controls three corners. Of those three corners, two are jewelers, and one is a lifestyle brand. Then you go down 57th Street, and you'll see store after store. It's either Louis Vuitton, I mean, uh, it's either LVMH or Chanel. And then at the corner of 57th and Madison, They've now got two corners. Uh, they're about to open their flagship Christian Dior store. It's going to be huge, multi-floors. Mm -hmm. And then directly across from that on the east side of the street is their Fendi store. What they're doing is they're using their clout to lock up corners around the world in long-term leases that stretch from 10 to 15 years. They're basically making sure that they're locking their competition out from the prime retail uh, locations, whether it's Champs-Élysées or it's New Bond Street in London or it's Madison Avenue in New York or Fifth Avenue or, you know, there are very many thoroughfares. And we're not even talking about their presence in malls. So the investment in their stores and the refurbishment of the stores, even Hermes is doing this now. Every month or so, Hermes announces 
that it's reopened the store and it's completely revamped it. And it's across the world. So all these conglomerates from LVMH to Caring to Hermes, Chanel, Richemont, um, you know, even Swatch Group, which owns, you know, a whole bunch of watches, uh, all of them are making sure that their stores are appealing to modern sensibilities and to the younger Gen Zs and millennials. Now, the only thing missing from that, and I got this feedback from a few people, was that, yes, they're, exp they're expensive refurbishments, but where is the element of surprise and delight? The minute you walk into the store, you know what to expect. It's just basically rearranging the decks on the chair, according to some, right? right? So where luxury retail needs to improve is enhance that element of surprise and delight and, uh, you know, intrigue me when I walk in. And that is something which is going to be, you know, fine-tuned over the years. But I think LVMH is on the right track. Their stores, especially their Louis Vuitton stores, are basically highly creative and they symbolize all the collaborations that they do and their window displays are out of this world. Yeah, because the, the surprise and delight is how do you do that without coming across as corny or diluting your brand or just turning people off? How do you do it in a tasteful, luxurious way that is not only obviously appealing to the biggest spenders, but uh, younger audiences too? If you look at um, Laura Piana, they recently refurbished a store in the Dubai, Dubai Mall in Dubai. Uh, and what they did was they, they turned that entire ground floor of that store into the VIC experience, a very important client experience. So for you to go to uh, the not so luxury, I mean, the luxury, but you know, the ultra luxury floor was the ground floor and then the regular luxury floor was experience was upstairs. But you positioned yourself right away when you walked in, you knew that this was a really ultra luxury experience distinct from other experiences when you walk into other luxury stores. So they have all these little codes that give people an idea that, you know, it's a very exclusive brand. Is there anything that caught your eye here in New York City on Fifth Avenue that you think uh, that you think is doing a pretty good job this holiday season in terms of thinking differently? Well, I'm, you know, I hate to say this. I walk past my offices very close to the LVMH North America headquarters. Uh, it's you now 57th and Madison. And so I walk past these stores. I walk up and down every day. And so I get to see all these stores as uh, it's window displays, the, you know, the carpets and, you know, assortments. I, I can't say I saw anything unusual. Right. What I would say is that, you know, the window displays have improved dramatically. Um, and then you see the type of customers walking in. But I think uh, I haven't seen luxury retail 3.0 yet. And it'll be interesting to see what happens when you know, Chinese and Japanese tourism rebounds to see if that will add significant buying power and fueling even more expansion in these hot luxury locations. China is a very interesting case because um, a huge chunk of the Chinese luxury consumption occurs on travels abroad. And obviously the Chinese real estate market uh, is suffering a bit because of speculation and then the main developers there have pretty much gone belly up. So a lot of the Chinese uh, savings and wealth are locked into real estate. But, you know, being a, 
a communist government, they're not going to allow that sector to tank. Right. So no matter what, they're going to make sure that the Chinese people are okay because they want to make sure that Chinese people spend domestically. The biggest problem China faced in the old days was, you know, exports accounted for the bulk of their GDP. And the Chinese and Indians are notorious savers. The Chinese, I believe I remember reading a few years ago, they served 35 cents on the dollar. And the Indians were 24 cents the dollar. And that is no good if you're trying to stimulate consumption in your local economy, right? And so that's the reason why the Chinese government encouraged all these luxury brands to come in and train the local Chinese people to buy and spend and keep that rotation and flow of money in the market. Now, once uh, they start traveling in full earnest uh, after you know the, the crisis there subsides, uh, you will see them return to their familiar haunts uh, like Paris and London, uh, New York. Obviously, the U.S. has to make sure that they they you know dispense these visas very quickly because you know that can be a big hurdle if you're trying to apply for an American visa because it's easier to get a French visa or a Schengen visa than it is to get an American. So um, I foresee that return. What we are not doing well as luxury brands uh, outside China is. If you know that you know these these brands are some of your biggest customers, you have to have more local delegations going there to make sure that they understand that when you come to New York, part of your New York experience is Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue, and Soho, all right, and even the meatpacking district. So these are the four districts where you get a mix of everything from shopping to uh, hotels to entertainment and dining. We need something where they can feel comfortable when they walk into a store if their language challenged, right? You still don't have that here. You have that in Paris. Right. Uh, you don't have that in the United States, where if someone walks into the, uh, the store here, unless you're a um, your, uh, Louis Vuitton, which the flagship store, they have uh, people who speak Mandarin uh, and people who can speak Chinese. So when someone who is not fluent in English walks in, that person who speaks Mandarin will basically be their concierge in the store. And that's what you want to see in major flagship stores across the US and around the world. There has to be more innovation in flagships. That is where I see the next uh, development. And that's where LVMH is investing money in making sure all the flagships uh, are standout stores. Another interesting phenomena that we saw was these brands that these luxury brands have also scouted a wider range of locations. They essentially started moving down market or moving into secondary markets. During the pandemic, they followed shoppers to the Sun Belt. You know, after yes. New York and LA, the most popular locations were like Miami, Atlanta, Las Vegas. You know, the new centers of wealth are popping up everywhere from, you know, you have Nashville, Austin, Dallas, Charlotte, Boulder. Very interesting. It's really in the past that these smaller markets would have never been considered you know you mentioned uh las vegas do you know how many louis vuitton stores there are in vegas a lot <laughs> nine <laughs> nine stores unbelievable in las vegas now think about that uh i visited almost all of them um and then hermes you have and Hermes in the win, and you have Hermes in the Aria. And I don't know if they have a third. Uh, 
they basically, I hate to say, this is almost like a Walmart strategy where you saturate the market, right? Walmart has this thing where if you have one Walmart, I mean, I don't mean to deviate, but you know, the thing is, if Walmart's requirement in the old days was that you had to have an, a population of 250,000 in that radius for you to operate a store successfully. And what they do is they open a store and then 10 miles down the road, they have another Walmart. So what happens is it becomes, the whole area becomes a dead zone for other retailers. Mm -hmm. And it's just their market. So this is what a lot of luxury brands do when, you know, in major cities, like if you go to Boston, you go to Newberry Street, right? I mean, it's full of luxury brands out there. You go and do a count of how many LVMH brands you have on that one street. You'll be shocked. All right. And they understand that obviously some most shoppers don't connect that this is all LVMH, but they still manage this tricky uh, balancing act of, you know, each brand having a distinct identity. But what they need to do is they need to make sure that you as a shopper who's aspirational encounter as many stores as possible on your strolls in these uh, luxury boulevards, right? Because it's not just online share. It is going to the store, getting familiar with the merchandise and buying a couple of products and then having the comfort of buying similar products online. So that has a halo effect on e-commerce. And that's the reason why retail is very important because it is not just about uh, you know, making sure that you can touch and feel. It's also instant gratification, but it's also uh, taking that knowledge and then basically enabling the customer to shop through the app or to shop through the mobile site and then sign up to the newsletter. And then that continues feeding, you know, the newsletter comes in and feeds a visit to the store. And then you come back home and you say, all right, maybe I should buy this, right? So it's a very circulatory impact that retail has here. Yeah. And what about the mall? You know, we're starting to see luxury brands moving into malls. They're, you know, they're taking over the empty shells of these former tentpole retail giants like the Sears of the world. And they're morphing them into these miniature luxury districts at shopping centers, you know, the ones that have obviously the right demographics in the area. Do you see any growth in that area, continuing growth? Yes, you've hit the nail on the head. These are luxury districts. They're town squares. That's what they are. When you go to the suburbs uh, of the United States, you don't really have a well-developed downtown anymore, right? Those downtowns are gutted. So what's happened is the mall has become the new downtown. It, and it is these malls that basically replicate the Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue, New Bond Street, Champs-Élysées uh, experiences in their, uh, you know, confined walls. Um, you in the old days you needed anchor tenants, mostly the department stores, right? Whether it was Saks or it was Bloomingdale's or it was J.C. Penney or it was uh, Sears, depending on you know the, what type of mall you were in. Now you don't need that, and what's happened is you've got all these stores there, you've got all these youngsters uh, who want to kill time, uh, who basically still want experiences. It's human nature to gather. And they walk into these stores and they end up buying stuff at an age that is unthinkable for people of my generation where, you know, where we, I mean, I wouldn't have bought a luxury product when I was 16 or 15, unless right. my parents brought me, right? Now these guys, they're basically buying into the 
the mythology of the brand. And uh, it helps that, you know, you have all these celebrities who are fronting these luxury brands. So when you walk into a mall, it's basically almost, a, it's essential sensory experience. Mm -hmm. It I come back to the romance. Now, people will question whether this is really luxury. Now, that's another debate for down the road. I mean, are we talking about the two tiers of luxury, uh, you know, luxury being cleaved into two worlds where you have mass luxury and then you have the ultra luxury. But for the moment now, we'll just consider everything luxury. So you're going to have, if you go to the Short Hills Mall in New Jersey, that mall was always considered a luxury mall. And it was, um, I think it's part of the Simon Property Group. Uh, and it has always been their star mall. And when you walk in there, um, I mean, I remember when you parked in the garage, I'd only look at the cars. Right. You want to know what type of shopper is shopping a mall, see the parking lot or see the underground parking, and you will understand the demographic they're trying to attract. That's all. And I can tell you, you look at smaller towns in the United States, the stock market has boomed. Uh, you know, all these people who have made money are in tech, in finance, bio, um, um, uh, biochemicals, and, you know, biosciences and that whole field has generated millionaires like you wouldn't know i mean millionaires and billionaires and guess what they're eating in restaurants uh they're shopping in these stores they're traveling abroad they're so knowledgeable when they walk into these stores they know exactly what they want and the challenge now for uh, luxury store associates is can you match the knowledge of your mm -hmm. shopper very difficult. That's why you have to you have to pay your good salespeople a lot of money. And that that's another challenge too. That's another. Retain. That's for another uh, podcast. Yeah, because you know <laughs> you retaining retaining your staff is a big issue. It's a big issue. Luxury's future challenges will include retailing retaining your retail store staff and also training artisans. No one wants to. Very few people want to go and do the 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 drudgery of you know, stitching and, right. you know, those repetitive tasks that their parents, grandparents were quite happy doing. I mean, everyone wants to be tapping away on a phone or a computer and they don't really want to uh, do manual work. So that's the reason why you find a lot of these luxury brands now hosting open houses in their stores and basically opening the kimono and showing how this is how this bag is made. And they call their artisans in and then they invite youngsters from local schools uh, and colleges to come and experience this so that they can basically welcome the next generation of talent. And they're using their stores as basically the venues to attract this talent. Mickey, let's look into the crystal ball. I know you love looking into the crystal ball and looking ahead. So let's start with what you think luxury retail will look like in 2024. What are you, what are you excited about? Um, Scott, I am excited about a few things in luxury retail. I think what we are seeing now is a completely redeveloped in-store experience. I've already alluded to the fact that, you know, uh, their window displays have improved dramatically. It's also in-store service, uh, the way the staff have been retrained, uh, the way displays are showing up in store, your walkways, your seating areas, merchandise displays, uh, the the checkout experience, all of that is literally being transformed in front of our own eyes. And, uh, you know, then the element of collaborations, it's interesting to see two distinct brands 
from different parts of the luxury sphere come together in a window display. And, you know, and that brings in customers and aficionados from both worlds into that one store. So that's one major trend you're going to see. Uh, two, you're also going to see uh, an increased presence of LVMH, Kering, Louis Vuitton, I mean, uh, Hermes, Chanel, uh, Richemont, and all these conglomerates. They're going to basically be fanning out in uh, developing countries in the Middle East. So keep your eyes out for Dubai, uh, Sharjah, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, Riyadh, Jeddah, uh, look at uh, Bombay, Delhi, uh, Singapore. Um, and then, you know, you've got uh, wealth coming out of Vietnam. You're going to see a whole new generation of shoppers coming in to the market from Southeast Asia. So they're going to basically improve all their store experiences uh, in Tokyo and Seoul because, you know, Chinese people, uh, the first two big markets when they travel out of China is into Hong Kong and Macau. And then out of that, they go to Seoul and they go to Tokyo and then Singapore. And then beyond that, they go to London, Paris and then uh, North America. So you're going to see a complete expansion of the retail footprint in these markets. You're also going to see uh, in Europe itself, like the few department stores that are there, they completely become temples of culture. Like you go to Paris at Lisa Maritain, you know, they partner with artists and I mean, every... Uh, display is a work of art. So you're going to see a proliferation of the um, the blending of art, culture, and shopping in key parts of the world. Uh, I'm going to, you're going to see more uh, luxury shopping malls in the United States. Uh, and you're going to see obviously an emphasis on revitalizing uh, you know downtown areas, especially with uh, dining and you know we've not even talked about that how, a lot of these luxury brands now, right. including restaurants, of course, right, as part of the experiences, right. So you know you get hungry if you go visit uh, Bergdorf Goodman's women's store on the seventh floor. I mean, the line is out the door around yeah. the corridor. I mean, you can't get. I mean, unless you make a reservation, uh, they're not going to basically seat you for the next four hours. <laughs> and it, it's it's that type of experience you see in store after store. Sachs has that experience. And then now monobrand stores are also having that experience there. Ralph so, has an experience. Ralph has that experience. So you go to the, you go to Ralph Lawrence uh, on 72nd Street and Madison Avenue. Uh, he's got his uh, cafe. They've got their cafe in the women's store. Man, it's a fashion show in the mornings. Yeah. And even in the evenings, in the afternoons. So I'm completely gung ho on luxury retail. Obviously, we're excluding incidents of terrorism or acts of God or you know, um, you know. Hope to God that we resolve yeah. one of these two international conflicts going on. But if right. we resolve even one, again, the stock market will go up. People will feel more confident. They'll be out shopping again. And already we are seeing trends that this holiday shopping season in the United States is going to, go, going to be spectacular. All the numbers are predicting that. Um, in terms of the housing market, the challenge the U.S. will face is something that's going on in the legal system is where... Uh, one court successfully ruled in favor of the plaintiffs where they said that they're challenging the buyer's commission because in the U.S., you know, it's 3 3%, 3% seller, 3% buyer. Right. And they say that why well, this is almost monopolistic and that could kind of damage the economics of being a real estate agent. Now, in the high-end real estate, uh, luxury real estate business, the rates are always negotiated. It's not made public, but, you know, when you're selling a 
$50 million property, the, both the buyer's agent and the seller's agent, they basically adjust their numbers. So it they are insulated a bit. They're insulated a bit. But you know the fact is that in the United States, I expect to see uh, more liquidity and more inventory on the market if the Fed lowers the interest rates. So I expect to see uh, a little more, uh, you know, a reinvigoration of transactions right. there. There's more movement. There's more movement, but I think uh, your agents will have to really up their act because if if their commissions are challenged, uh, you know, they'll have to make sure that they are really in it as a profession and not just as a pastime, you know, or as a as you know something that they'll do in their spare time. Uh, but I'm completely bullish on the luxury real estate market in the United States. Prices will hold. And, uh, you know, top agents will perform. And I expect to see more inventory on the market. Well, thank you, Mickey. And I want to wish you and the listeners a very happy holiday. And I look forward to our next show next month. Thank you so much, Scott. As usual, it's been a wonderful experience. What a lovely way to book bookend this year talking to you. And I wish you and your family a wonderful holiday season as well. And to all our listeners, uh, you know, keep your spirits up. Uh, you know, this is, we still live in very good times and, uh, you know, hope to see you at our next podcast. Mm -hmm.